Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello! And Alyssa Jones can't join us today, and so returning from last week is our <laughs> special guest, Andrew Tag. Surprise, it's me again. Thanks for having me back. Four times. Fifth time, your cat gets a jacket. Perfect. Let's see if we can get that before Christmas. We'll see. <laughs> I know. Oh. So we're going to continue cognitive psychology and what happens when you get rid of our cognitive psychologist. Uh, we get to go a little haywire. And so we're going to talk about memory metaphors. And so looking forward to this. Why do we think the brain is like a bunch of stuff? And so, I mean, the, the typical one is a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, maybe there's some stuff in there that kind of works. Like we do have cognitive load and like working aspects of memory that can be analogous to RAM. We have storage and retrieval systems. We have kind of different levels. Operating system. But the brain is definitely not a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brain is far more advanced. Um, it does not store memory the way a computer stores memory. It uh, doesn't really process things. I mean, if a computer stores something, it's there forever. And I mean, technically, it might be there forever in the back of the brain. Yeah, but we're not we really sure really... how long uh, long-term memory lasts. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm posing this question in the description. Why do we think the brain is like a computer, a loom, an onion, a card catalog, a tuning fork, a compost pile, a mystic writing pad, or a cow's stomach? Only one of those things is not an actual metaphor for memory. We have been coming up with metaphors for memory since we started conceptualizing memory. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to Plato and Aristotle. Um Plato differentiated, Plato had two different metaphors of memory. One of them is the wax tablet, where um, the tablet is something that you can write on, you can imprint things on. Um, This metaphor is a little passive. So it's not quite something that uh, we are, the, the tablet is not an active thing. It's just life happens to it. And so memories get imprinted. Memories can get smudged. You can put new imprints over old ones. And then the other one, which I really like, is the aviary. So a uh, house for birds. And so memories are uh, birds in your aviary. And so in order to retrieve a memory, you have to go out and catch the bird. And your memories are either flocking together with other similar memories or they're standing alone or in the case of maybe like a traumatic memory, it's just a giant ostrich inside of your aviary. <laughs> it's a really friendly emu. Right. <laughs> so those were two of the earliest metaphors of memory that we have. Um, but who knows? People, maybe people were using memory metaphors long before them. They were just the first to write them down. I, I mean, we could go back to like one of the big nature nurture debates with like Aristotle's blank tablet and Descartes' blank slate. Uh, is it Descartes? Oh, I'm messing my philosophers up. Um, but, like, even that is an idea. Like, do we have something already pre-written on the slate? 
or the piece of paper or the notebook or whatever it may be? Or do we, through experience, add stuff to the notebook or to the paper or to the slate? Um, do you already that, have birds in your aviary or do you have to go out and catch them first? Which, I well, mean, that... we technically do, I guess. I mean, we have reflex. We are born with reflexes. We are born with a, or at least we are born with a predisposition to attract birds. <laughs> Lock. It's Lock. Ah, oh yeah. There we go. I knew it was within that realm. I talk about the car and Lock together, so. There's a philosopher listening who's probably like, Why? And then the philosopher's on the call. Yeah. He's in the room. Yeah, I double check I double checked before I corrected you. It's Locke. Yeah, no, that's good. Um yeah, so the big problem with these is that they're terrible. <laughs> they're not right. they're or they're limited. They're they're not mm -hmm. necessarily bad. If we look at um one of the things that I, I talk to my research students about is that we have kind of three levels of theory. So we have um so descriptive, uh, which just kind of explains the, like, the definition, the nature, descriptive explanations. We have analogous, and then we kind of get to that like fundamental, much more comprehensive explanation. And that these aren't comprehensive explanations of memory, they're analogous. And if the analogy falls apart in any little way, it just all falls apart. Mm -hmm. So that's Freud's iceberg. Oh, Right. I, one of the main articles for this, if anyone wants to read it, is Rodiger 1980, I believe, where he goes through these different kinds of metaphors. And he brings up a good point. I believe he quotes Freud. I'm trying to see if I can find it. But Freud essentially said that if uh, your metaphor is helpful to explain what's going on, even if it's not perfect, it doesn't deserve ire. I was actually going to bring that up because we, we do it. I do think it is a good point and it is important to keep in mind that while not perfect, they are very useful for helping people understand different aspects of memory. And while many of these are not perfect, I, I know from teaching classes that I'll, I'll go to many of these to try and clarify a concept. So I do think they have a, a usefulness in that way, despite the imperfection. I mean, discussing like long-term, short-term, sensory memory using a computer monitor or computer i think people grasp that a whole lot easier than trying to explain the entire complexity of, of cognitive memory processes in an hour and 15 minute class by just saying like well like sensory memory is what is presented on your screen or like the the actual inputs you're putting into the computer i guess would be better and then short-term memory is kind of the stuff that's currently on the screen and then when you save it it becomes long-term memory. Mm -hmm. and yes it is stupidly more complex than that or far more complex than that i usually use a ram and a hard drive ram would be your working memory and your hard drive would be your long-term memory so that also allows you to talk about individual differences a little bit because using this, you've got like, let's say person A has four gigs of RAM and person B has six. Yeah. One mm -hmm. one is probably going to be to attend to more tasks or better attend to a task than the other because they just have more working memory room, I guess you could say. So that's something mm -hmm. I use from time to time. But once again, you're right. It's 
a very simple simplified version of it and i would say too that i think it's one thing to talk about memory metaphors in the context of like teaching and pedagogy and like getting the message across to like undergrads or grad students or high schoolers if you're teaching a high school psychology course um but most of the time memory metaphors are actually used within research contexts this is true and i don't know if that's well i don't know if it's necessarily a problem because it orients us towards what kinds of research questions to ask and to test for right i mean since our cognitive psychologist isn't here right now i'll take my first blow um but cognitive psychology is notorious for looking at the effect of something and then walking backwards trying to explain what it means. And so a metaphor is very helpful to move forward with research, I think, in a way that cog psych tends to work backwards from the thing that happened. Um, so if you think of something like, what is it? The uh, memory is like the reconstruction of a dinosaur skeleton um by Nieser 1967 I like that one that made a lot of sense to me I really like that one the idea that an archaeologist only needs like two or three pieces of dinosaur bone in order to reconstruct a skeleton of a full dinosaur we only need two or three cues to you know enact a schema in order to reconstruct a memory which also falls in line with like false memories too mm-hmm. um and that's a great explanation for false memories So I don't know if it's a bad thing for research. I just think that depending on what you want to study and how you want to start with a theory and move into data collection, um, depending on the metaphor you use is going to be, is it most helpful or not? Yeah. And and I mean, the problem I could see though, is, is that if we're getting down to like the types of questions you're asking being dependent on your metaphor, Picking a poor metaphor means that you're probably going to be drawing poor questions from it, right? And so it'd be very, you'd be very, very careful that, like, maybe you've you've got that grasp of memory first before you construct the metaphor to utilize it. I mean, I guess one needs to work off the other. You could just imagine. I mean, the idea is is that you could technically make a metaphor out of everything. Like, I could say, oh, the computer works great. If I'm talking about, I was talking about transactive memory in group processes today. And so when two people combine their memory together, I'm like, that's just like networking two computers together, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, over a local area network. (laughs) So Uh, land party, it makes sense. And that could work. And that might work out in that case. But also if it's not, again, if it's not a good, a good analogy, then we're in trouble. (laughs) I think it could be a good analogy if you think about land. Um, what is land? What is that network that people share in mm-hmm. order to exchange memories? And so yeah. then we start asking ask questions about that aspect of cognition, which I think would be interesting. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying that necessarily that was a bad analogy, <laughs> but if it was a bad analogy, <laughs> I will take I will take full credit for development of that analogy. <laughs> Um, we'll call it the land party of memory. Um, yeah, I mean, like it could, it could work. I could, I could definitely see, but like, again, I, I think, I guess the importance of utilizing it in research, it's kind of like on, on one level, it's easy to kind of like bring it down to an easily digestible level for people to understand and to kind of draw people into your research. 
but I, I almost get the, um, I get some like weird vibes of some of the research out there where people will like come up with this like new, new phrase or new topic or new, new factor. And then the way they describe it, 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 it falls into line with some of these like serious research methods issues. So like we talk about bias in research and, and how that can affect the questions that you're asking. So if you're biased or partial to a particular type of analogy, just like a particular field, it's going to change the type of question you're asking mm-hmm. or if the way that you kind of define or build your analogy, especially if you're building a new one, that if it falls in line with something like a tautology or like a cert, like some circular reasoning, it just, it, it gives me the impression of, um, there was a researcher who developed this concept they called aggressive instinct, which it was supposed to be a predictor for like innate aggression or like active aggression in animals. And when you actually looked at how they measured it, it was just aggression. It's right. just all it was. It was just the same thing. And so, they were doing all this research on aggressive instinct and saying like, it's this new predictor. Like we, we, we found all this research that works. I'm like, it's just aggression. It's, it's studying itself. It's circular, Mm -hmm. but just to kind of be careful with going too far with the analogy. (laughs) Right. I, I think to piggyback off of that too, I think a common bias, and this is something that Rodiger picks up is that, the metaphors have a tendency to be about storage or locationality of memory. So memory is a house that you put things in, or memory is the garbage can that you throw things in, or memory is a purse with all of your memories actually being like coins in your purse. I believe that one's Miller. He's like, you only get seven plus or minus two pennies in your purse. That's also and memory wrong. doesn't care if it's pennies or if it's quarters or if it's like half dollars. And so there also tends to be a bias towards this like storagey uh, metaphor that we're imagining memory to be a physical location with individual memories that are like tangible items that we put in there and store and organize. Which is also kind of like it makes sense that we use that metaphor, but also that's probably moving us further away from what memory actually is. I mean, if memories, if mem- or if if the brain is a house, memory is like the little supply room and like supply closet in the back of the house that you cram everything in. <laughs> but also, like it's connected to everything to an extent. But it's not like there's a chunk here and there's a chunk here and there's a. It's just uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm trying. Well, uh, well, two things. First, I think it's important to keep in mind, especially looking at this list uh, in R- Rodiger Table 1, there is a lot of kind of cultural and temporal uh, influence here as well, because I'd like to point out one that I feel would be very unlikely like right now, which is ones like Tuning Fork in 76 are, I mean, heck, the wax tablet, like Mm. that's not something someone, I had to explain what a wax tablet was earlier today when I was talking to someone about this. So a gramophone. (laughs) Yeah. Like there is a, there is an element to what time period you're in and what culture you're in to the way the metaphor is going to go. And I think that's really important because it does speak to 
it being very useful for bridging the gap between our more, uh, let's say, regimented dis discussion of memory and a, a way that people can more easily approach it. Like, mm -hmm. I get that a lot of these metaphors are used in research, but I see that as a positive in that it makes it easier for people to understand. But I do agree, we need to make sure that we're always super clear that these are not perfect. This is just a starting point. Mm -hmm. And I think they can even be useful in that way once you're able to start pointing out why that metaphor doesn't work. I think that's definitely showing that you have a greater understanding of what we're talking about because you could say why this is wrong. Right. One of the things that while reading this article that I, what drew my interest is that both William James and Sigmund Freud have house metaphors. Huh. And James's metaphor is you just throw a bunch of stuff in your house and then you have to like <laughs> rummage through it and figure out what's going on. Whereas Freud's is very like methodical. It's like rooms in a house and how people move through different rooms. And so I wondered if that was a cultural difference between Freud and James, James being an American, Freud being from Vienna, Lived that a more there, orderly life. There might be a more like there's probably an actual methodology to how people move through rooms in like Victorian Europe than say in America. I'm I'm also getting the impression that William James may have been a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like even, um, I mean, we, we could talk about like broader metaphors, like is it, uh, William, yeah, William James, uh, to develop the, the concept of the stream of consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, likening the flow of consciousness and thought to a river. Um, and again, like I think it's, it's very, um, temporal location, you know, like, like this idea of, it's very likely like what you're more, what you're most familiar with. So the house makes a great metaphor for a memory because most of us are pretty familiar with how a house works. Mm -hmm. um, or like even something like if an academic is coming up with it, the card catalog analogy, I think is a really good one in a modern sense. Not so much unless you're a librarian, then you're like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, I can understand the card catalog sentiment. Um, I'd almost wonder if like, like the idea of the memory metaphor might be a good assignment for a memory and cognition class of, of having them develop their own memory metaphor. Like on one hand, it. how did it work? I'm waiting to see the results. Oh boy. Ooh. Yeah. It, if my uh, students are listening to this, uh, I'm expecting a lot. <laughs> <laughs> good, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> It might be, I would, I would actually be really interested to see what they come up with. Cause you're teaching the teacher class, like the teacher education learning processes class. So you have like education majors in your class. Well, I mean, let's, let's not overstate that it is a, uh, what is it like a cross-labeled class? I've got a lot of non-psych majors in there. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying is that the metaphors might be very interesting because they're coming out of. Oh, okay. Thing. Okay. You know, yeah. They're coming, they're coming from a non-psych perspective. And it'll be good because next semester I'll have my students do it. Ooh. And uh, we can compare. Well, that's assuming I give them a, 
I do discussion posts. I give them two choices. That's assuming they choose that one. But Every, everyone chooses the other. One. <laughs> yeah, they maybe. always choose the one you don't want. But I mean, but like it, it makes sense because it allows you to take something within your understanding that you're familiar with and apply it to the very basic concepts and to kind of use sometimes stretching using kind of your own logic to kind of say, oh, this is what it is. Um, so like out, out of the out of all of the ones that 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 I listed early on, the wrong answer is an onion. <laughs> like there oh. there is none. <laughs> but I could probably I sit that up. Yeah, I could probably sit down though and say like, well, you know, I mean onions do have layers and we, we do have differences in how close to the edge of our consciousness versus hidden away our memories lie and so thus our memories like an onion exist in layers of salience <laughs> i'm really stretching but well i mean let's be fair there, there are some uh unimodal models that an onion works and kind of what you were talking about how these have a tendency to align with other theories I totally stole that from uni, unimodal, like, <laughs> like 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this what? has been a, 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 a pretty consistent thing in history. I mean, the history of memory discussions is finding ways to define it. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, one of the things I noticed about this list from Rodiger also speaks to his concluding thoughts in this article about the computer is that by 1980, he says the currently the most influential approach in cognitive psychology is based on analogies derived from the digital computer. Everything prior to that, you have several analogies that come out years from each other, like two come out this year, another one comes out the next year. And there seems to be a lot of analogies being generated prior to 1980. And he says the information processing approach has been import has been an important source of models and ideas but the fate of its predecessor should serve to keep us humble concerning its eventual success. In 30 years, the computer-based information processing approach that currently reigns may seem as invalid as the metaphor for the human mind as the wax tablet or telephone switchboard models do today. But we're looking at it 40 years yeah. since this came out and we're still using the computer. So is that, I guess my question is, is that the best metaphor or are we just kind of living in like a state of like oh we're still here i think since the 1980s especially with cognitive psychology co cognitive science and its overlap with um computer science and 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 in those particular fields is so heavily entwined that modern cognitive psychology began with modern computing Mm -hmm. uh, and with it, I think we'll end. I mean, like we'll continue on with modern computing. I mean, like it, it it's going to like live and die by the computer. Um, I don't think it'll die by the computer, but yeah, something cool. like that. I mean, but like, we don't have, I, I don't think like, and again, like we can't speculate. I think just in the same way that someone like Aristotle could not speculate something else besides the wax tablet. I don't think Aristotle could sit around and go like one day we're going to have paper. There's no concept of paper mm -hmm. to Aristotle. Um, well, I mean, at least into a sense of like broadly, widely like used to where it would be easily understood by a lot of people. Um, just a, or I guess a better way to say that would be there's no concept of the computer in a sense to Aristotle. Um, 
there might be stuff that we look back on and we're projecting. Oh, he's talking about advanced technology. Atlantis is real. Um, but yeah. Well, that that kind of gets me thinking about uh, something we just said. Like the computer metaphor is still around, right? And Thomas, I believe you said that was what forty years ago. Mm-hmm. At least since Rodiger like wrote that article. Right. So nineteen eighty. Okay. Yeah, nineteen eighty. So, it was raining, and it's still well heavily prominent today. He, he, here's. What I'm kind of thinking about that, though, is I'm thinking back to all of the stuff I know about demographics and use of technology and all of that stuff uh, and how it really exploded after that point. I don't think anyone in the 80s actually, when they watched like Blade Runner, realized that, you know, 40 years later, we have a lot of the technology in that movie. Yeah, from an academic standpoint, the computer was new and and starting to be kind of widely used. And so if you were an academic, the computer, an academic psychologist, cognitive psychologist, the computer metaphor really fit. And it would be right in the 80s to kind of question like, oh, what are we going to have in 30 years? But now that we're basically holding computers in the palm of our hands, I mean, maybe what you might see it become is is some variation. So we might talk about it in relation to a smartphone, even though it's the same analogy. It's the computer analogy. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about it in relation to like a computer tablet or a smartphone or a smartwatch or something like that. Like it's the same analogy, but it's just sort of adopting to a specific type of technology or specific um, a thing that people might be more familiar with. But I don't think, I don't know, I could be in Rodder's position. I don't speculate in 30 years we're going to have another computer, like a better computer analogy. Well... I'm kind of starting to think the more we talk about this, it doesn't really matter because the more we talk about it, the more I think that this really is a cultural time kind of thing. And I'm starting to really side on as long as it's useful and gives people uh, a good launching point and the metaphor is good enough. Like, I think we will always have these different type of metaphors, but I am willing to, uh, we can meet again in 20 years, but uh, I am willing to bet that the uh, uh, computer metaphor will still be around. Mm-hmm. I wonder though, and this is just me playing devil's advocate, but does the marriage of the computer analogy limit the diversity of research questions to be asked in cognitive psychology? Like, if we had competing metaphors, do you think that, not to be like, free marketplace of ideas, bro, like, right. we have competing <laughs> metaphors to, like, study memory with, but in reality, I'm thinking, like, in the 70s, you have multiple competing mm-hmm. metaphors at the time, and then they consolidated to the present. Well, it, and I bring that uh, up because we just had a conversation about, about semantic and the relationship between semantic and episodic memory, and how and this was written in 2013 where we're like introducing like grounded theory of cognition and how semantic memories and episodic memories are not actually as distinct as like older models pitch them as so in the past it was like oh well this person with amnesia doesn't remember their life events but they still have their semantic memory intact so it's fine Mm -hmm. but now it's like okay well the episodic memories create the context and the sensory, uh, what is it, simulation 
within consciousness in order to contextualize and draw out meanings of things. So I wonder if the blending or the merging of different cognitive processes that were treated very separately, like separate programs um, with the computer metaphor, if that is, might be the denigration of the computer metaphor. Well, it's like bridging everything together in a sense, and as computers become more advanced and our our general understanding of the components of a computer becomes more advanced. Because I don't think 10 years ago, I could have used the RAM analogy in a classroom and gotten well, nearly as much understanding and head nodding as I would today. And I mean, even today, it's not great, but it's better. Uh, well, I mean, I'm going to have to go a little more than 10 years ago, but you know, 15, maybe even 20 years ago, I don't think everyone predicted that we would be carrying around a computer with, you know, anywhere from like a four to six inch touchscreen that once again is like straight out of an 80s or a 70s sci-fi movie. Like it 100%, we have the tablet from Star Trek. Like that's what that is. Uh, But, and that's kind of what I was getting at earlier was that, Every everyone has a computer. Everyone has, well, put asterisks around everyone, yeah. but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just so available that anyone really has access to it. And I, looking at the list, like a lot of these, with well, maybe the exception of the cow stomach, a lot of people would have really easy access to like move this information around in their head. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. yeah there's there's a grander basic understanding things like the internet i mean that might that might be the future of it we we don't refer to it as the computer but we refer to like the internet as a metaphor for memory the storage of all these ideas on different websites and stuff like that where it becomes kind of a broader sense so that way whether you're using a computer or a cell phone or your smart tv or whatever it may be like you understand downloading stuff from the internet (laughs) Mm -hmm. servers and hubs and things like that that kind of this and networks honestly that might be a slightly better metaphor in the grand scheme of things because of the way neural networks work and the way that that we kind of like combine and connect information in these like broader networked schema charts a computer network with a series of like server hubs that are all connected to one another and sharing information but that are like special like that one neuron that activates like that singular website um, you know in that way might might in a way be a slightly better metaphor for something like right. mm-hmm. well you I, I feel like you could even work in things like spreading activation because when you're at that website the cookies go out and you uh start getting uh more stuff similar to that so as you're searching terms it spreads out the, the algorithm stereotyping <laughs> but you it works i mean yeah it's just if you're yeah it's priming specific you know thoughts to be more likely to come up um to the forefront of your mind although i i I don't like the internet as an explanation simply because of terminator 3 uh, well i mean i'm not going to explain that because i feel like the people listening if they know they know like I mean, they could go back and, and, and listen to our discussion that the internet may actually be a better representation of the Jungian collective unconscious. Uh, 
that would I be like that. that would be my argument if I were going to go that route. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I will say maybe in 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 twenty years when we're on episode eleven hundred, we can meet together and and retalk about it or. We could be sitting around a campfire at the end of the world being like, the best analogy is is stone tablet. Like, I prefer wooden tablet uh, because we've lost it all. So. <laughs> I got to keep up the existential dread of the cognition episode. Um, <laughs> so well, I, I think to go along with the existential dread, there is a apt metaphor for the end of the world. It's the compost heap. And this one's relatively new. That does that does bridge us to the most ridiculous metaphors that you could you could find. And so you're going to talk about the compost heap. Yes, and I don't think it's necessarily as ridiculous. So it's odd. Yes, absolutely. This comes out in I believe Wrangell 2007, Randell 2007. It's from it's called from computer to compost. And basically, they make the argument that the computer metaphor has run its course. <laughs> Humans are not as sterile, clean. Our memories are not as pristine. The computer doesn't mix up memories. Um, and that in order to further research, we need a different metaphor to utilize. And so they proposed the compost heap. Um, they make the distinction between the compost heap and say like a physical location or storage space metaphor by saying that compost is usually treated as a verb and so they're treating it as a verb instead of as a noun that's kind of eh. that's like saying the difference between the computer as a storage and computing as a process okay semantics semantics i think this this article is very uh english Department of English inspired. There's lots of literary quotes in it, which I thought was interesting. But essentially, they move the process of memory, specifically autobiographical memory, into the stages of laying it on, breaking it down, stirring it up, and mixing it in, rather than uh, encoding storage and retrieval. And so... They argue that with composting, similar to episodic memory, lots of things happen to us that get thrown on top of the heap. And as you layer on the compost, the things at the bottom start to uh, decompose, literally, um, just as humans decompose. And so their interest in this metaphor is both for episodic memory as well as understanding episodic memory for geriatrics. And so that's kind of the frame at which we're approaching this. Um, and so the laying it down is all of your life stuff happens to you. And if you want to recall life events that were recent, you have a better time pulling them out. And, you know, the banana peel st still looks like a banana peel. But if that banana peel was laid down like 20 years ago, it's like a Lovecraftian horror of <laughs> banana peel, coffee grounds, watermelon rind cow poop i don't know what else you put in the compost pile um so that's the laying down the stirring up is whenever you need to recall old memories that you have to bring them through the past and into the present and so they get contaminated by all of your other life experiences as you stir up the compost pile um 
and then the mixing in so as things happen you mix them in to what's already happened and so by the end of life you have this conglomerate of stuff that is kind of merged together within your memory that is no longer pristine or represents what actually happened but is viewed and spliced and meshed together with other life events which you know rides with loftus's memory research um the other thing oh go ahead I was going to say, in, in defense of the computer, where they say it's too clean and pristine, like no one has seen like the old academic desktop mm. where it's just files everywhere. Nothing is organized. <laughs> just everything is stored on the desktop. Um, and if you feel attacked, go and clean your desktop. Like that's my first rule of living. Clean your desktop. Clean your um, desktop. But like okay, even Jordan then, Peterson. like, You're yeah, I'm real mean, dad. I keep... Uh, I have like folders upon folders of stuff and like I forget because like, it's also my own memory like is tied mm -hmm. into that folders get lost files get lost and they're buried and in order to get to them I have to go deep and like find those cues um, and so really it's not a metaphor about computers it's a metaphor about our interaction with computers which uses our memory so maybe that's why it makes sense yeah which I think builds into the extended cognition theory as well that maybe computers aren't necessarily a good metaphor for our memory, but they are a great way to study our exported cognition or our extended cognition. So yeah. the computer is literally cognition. It's not just a metaphor. Yeah. So that's their argument is that the compost heap acknowledges the messy decompositional aspects of memory, but it also talks about... Um, this interesting thing he pulled from Erickson, um, generativity. And so mm -hmm. a compost heap is meant to be used and compost is meant to be shared and compost is meant to be um, used to like bring forth new life, essentially. And so not only is our memory something that like we store and like it decomposes, but we also share those experiences with others, use those experiences to uh you know foster new life essentially and he also brings up the point that people may also throw things into our compost pile and so this idea of like source uh error issues with memory that did you put that thing in your compost heap or did your mom put that thing in your compost heap from from the social perspective it is a social compost heap that we are working mm -hmm. with everyone yeah. has potential access to it and so that's also the utility of this, particularly with older adults looking mm -hmm. at generativity is, are you using your experiences? Are, are you, yeah. Do you feel good about them? Are they useful? Are they nurturing new generations? Um, and like any good metaphor for memory, we also have our little homunculus who is the gardener and who decides what's on the compost heap and when we stir it and when we layer it and when we share it. And so that is uh, Randall's 2007 argument is that maybe don't disregard the computer, but also acknowledge the death and aging of the person um, in a way that computers may or may not account for. So I generally like it. I like the yeah. aspect of like people putting things in your compost pile and you sharing things from your compost pile. Something about that sounds wrong. <laughs> it's far less ridiculous. 
like new life from death kind of thing. Yeah. The article is very interesting. Like I said, they cite a lot of uh, uh, literature, like in, like uh, literary works and stuff. Um, so we're definitely very serious about the fact that we're building a metaphor. <laughs> I guess that's good. So yeah. I didn't write an outline, so I'm just sort of like coasting right now. Yeah, so <laughs> like, are, are, are we going to, where do we go from here? Because we can bring up the fact that you two didn't do the assignment or, uh, you know. We, oh, we just... didn't do the assignment because we had originally challenged ourselves to the three of us coming up with a memory metaphor. And then we elected to unconsciously put all that responsibility on our guest yeah. who did understand uh, it... the assignment. To, to be fair, I, I have not only helped to develop a really rough explanation for the memory as an onion, um, <laughs> but I've also developed transactive memory as a land party. Oh, there so, you go. Yeah. I, uh, I did it on the fly. Yeah. It's like some of my grad school assignments. <laughs> oh, been there. Oof. So, our esteemed guest... Andrew Tag, what memory metaphor did you bring for us to uh, tear apart? Hold on. That uh, statement Daniel just made is making me re-experience some trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Is there an ostrich in your aviary? (laughs) It's it's an overweight penguin. That's... Oh, no. Just sits there and it makes noise. Occasionally it pecks me. Before I get into my idea, that was something about the uh, aviary I really liked because the art Rodiger brings up the difference between uh, possessing and having knowledge. Mm. And I really appreciated how they uh, talked about it, which was possessing knowledge is having the bird in your aviary. Having knowledge is literally holding that bird. And I I, I found that really interesting. I, I like that. But it also kind of uh, works well with what I came up with because, as you guys well know, I'm very fond of trading card games. And something you do with that, especially when you cr- collect as many cards as I do, which, yeah, I have a problem. Uh, the first step. Yeah. Is admitting <laughs> I have a problem? Just turn this into my support group. I mean, they, they should probably exist when it comes to Magic the Gathering. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the idea I came up with, uh, stealing a little bit from uh, the, the computer model and a couple of other things, uh, I went with a trading card binder. Memory is like a trading card binder. And uh, for those of you who have no idea what a trading card binder is, well, it's a binder. It has many pages in it that are segmented into either four or nine slots. Uh, the I'm holding a binder in my hand. It's nine slots, and it has usually somewhere between like 20 to 30 pages. And you can put your cards in it and organize them. And I was doing that earlier, and I realized this kind of works for explaining memory as well. But we kind of alluded to it, uh, you specifically, Daniel, when you were talking about uh, us as the agent. Uh, this metaphor really only works if we start off by 
putting the person organizing the binder as kind of the central executive or the uh, attention director, I guess. That makes Ooh. sense. So like all good metaphors, we have our homunculi. Uh, here I, I am. You need to get me a homunculi. <laughs> all I request is that when the uh, homunculi enters, the song Rock Me Like a Hurricane plays. Mm. Okay. That could be a good title for this episode. When the homunculi uh, enters. <laughs> that actually, yeah, I like that. But uh, I believe it would be homunculus, though, because homunculi right. would be plural. Oh, that's true. I yeah. mean, maybe I want several. Several? <laughs> Get an inside out situation? I feel hmm. like we're trying to write a, uh, a walk into a bar joke right now. Uh, <laughs> but so you have uh your person making their binder and that is your central executive that's the per that's the so that's the source that's directing attention paying attention to the sensory information that's coming in from the environment in this case that sensory information is things like trading uh like different cards uh all this other stuff and then you, the ones you're paying attention to. So I have thousands of cards, but I only have about a hundred in this binder. So I remember the cards in this binder. Like I know what's in here. The 20 other boxes I have, I have no real clue. But this is everything I have like immediate access to, can draw really easily. Uh, and I can organize it as well much like we theorize how we uh, categorize things and put them into hierarchies and distribute all of that, you arrange your binder in different ways, mainly based on the card game you play, but uh, each card could be a memory, a, a procedural memory, you know, something you know, but it's all sorted around and accessed by you. Mm -hmm. So... That's kind of the groundwork of what I came with, came up with. I, I mean, to me, it makes sense. It kind of works the same as the computer memory. You have this stuff in kind of your immediate access. And if we're talking about it for someone who collects cards and a broader metaphor would be someone who, you know, collected any kind of card, baseball cards, uh, right. uh, any sort of sport trading cards. Um, if you collect anything, this is a good metaphor for you. Yep. The, the homunculus is the, the curator of that collection. You are the curator of that collection, this sort of central executive, this, this attention focuser. And the collection is your memory. And so some of it is out in the open and on display and easily accessible and thought about. Some of it is in storage uh, that you can bring out, maybe change up every now and then. I guess this is also why like the metaphor of the house works, because you could redecorate, you could you could put stuff in storage, you could take it out, you know, certain times where you have to think about it. So, you bring out the Christmas tree and the decorations certain times a year. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like pulling out certain bits of information when you need it, when it's needed to be at the forefront. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a study unique. I don't know if it necessarily differs from, say, like the library metaphor. Right. And when we were talking about it, I kind of realized that I was very much uh, borrowing from a bunch of different places, kind of lining myself up with those different theories. So I, th I thought that was a really interesting uh, observation we brought up was that, mm -hmm. and Rodiger, I believe, brought up, there are, was it the later article? Hmm. 
I, I forget which, but one of them brings it up uh, that these do kind of have a tendency to overlap with something that already exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, I guess I like this because you can also take into account like if you're doing a playing card game, maybe not necessarily baseball. I don't know if baseball card collectors have a game. Um, but like for Magic the Gathering or Pokemon or, you know, what have you, the idea that, you know, the cards that you have in your hand during the game or on the board or like maybe your working memory and then the binder is like your precognition or preconsciousness. So it's things that are available to you that are easily primed and you can grab them if you need them and you know where they are. And then you're like five boxes at home or your long-term memory that have a certain organization to them perhaps, but they may be haphazardly thrown in together you may have some on your floor that your cat plays in like your memory. Okay, get... Now, now you're just blatantly saying actual facts. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're, using, if we're using this metaphor, I think that would be apt to say that if you have like several cards, things slip out, things get lost. Where did I put that thing again? Oh shoot. The cat has it. So that's what I'm saying is that, that would account for some of the messiness of memory. Yeah. We just blame the cat. I mean, the cat My itself cat is, is fault, faultless. Do not blame her. <laughs> the, the idea of the cat within us all is, is a good metaphor for how our memories get messed up. Because <laughs> occasionally the cat just sort of knocks it off the table. I, I was actually think, th- thinking about that with like... Uh, like retrieval errors where like you retrieve a memory but you think it's someone else uh having someone else's cards in your binder that happens all the time let me just point out that we also have a like colloquialism for this cat got your tongue when you can't retrieve the thing and the cat knocked it off the table (laughs) The, the cat has stolen it and added it to the cat's hoard yes memory is like a dragon cave. <laughs> so many treasures that are hidden away and melting together because it's so hot. Actually, you know what? That works. It does. There you go, Tom. You have also created a metaphor Yay! of memory. We I have did. all done the assignment. We have totally you've done, done it. You've done the best job, I think, Daniel, because yours were not uh, physical spaces. Eh, who cares? I mean, the onion. Oh, uh, the onion. But the land, the land party is a good one. That's yeah, I like that a lot. Sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, does uh, does the land party play Quake? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> we played. Uh, I'm trying to remember back to land parties in high school. Uh, we played a lot of uh, Half Life. Good game. Yeah. So. All right, I guess I guess with that, before I forget, before the cat proverbial gets, you know, the proverbial cat gets my tongue, uh, I should probably bring up our bias of the week. Yay, bias of the week! See, I'm 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 used to having like trying to be more professional with guests. I don't get your your wonderful bias of the week commentary whenever like your excitement when I bring up bias of the week when we have a guest on. Oh um, yeah, no, I try to like not be a total loser. <laughs> 
But I can be a loser in front of Andrew. That's fine. We're more comfortable around you. That's it's a we good trust thing. you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so our bias of the week, our Kahneman and Seversky bias of the week, um, is attributed to Kahneman. We're we're actually scraping the bottom of the barrel here. I only got like two or three left. Um, oh shoot! Yeah, yeah, we're definitely gonna run out before the end. But Kahneman Zversky, uh the the attributed to Kahneman bias of the week is extreme aversion bias. It is the tendency to avoid making choices considered extreme, but instead choosing an intermediate or middle choice. Mm. So presumably people who compete at the X Games probably don't have an issue with this. No. Um, however, maybe if we're talking about memory metaphors, there's probably an aversion to picking something that you don't understand or that's not oh, grounded in your reality uh, because it would be too extreme of a metaphor. So we don't use the onion. We use the house. Um, or, or you were educated in the 21st century and the metaphor taught to you is the computer and so you stick with it yeah you just go with it and we just kind of go along with it because we got too much else to worry about then what's the appropriate memory metaphor that we should be using in this day and age i mean it's good enough and we're also not memory researchers so we don't care and that's all that matters we instead choose an intermediate or middle choice the good enough choice it's not bad it's not terrible it's not the bottom of the barrel but it's also not like the super advanced choice it's not that one's going to get. Yeah, it's it's good enough, just like Which, our podcast. Uh, <laughs> I was about to say the memory metaphor also kind of sounds like a heuristic in that way. It's good oh, that, enough. It yeah, satisfies the, the situation. The memory metaphor heuristic that we we, mm. we pick we pick a meta or we pick metaphors based on what is kind of grounded within our reality. You have to pick something that is good enough because it's going to stick. You don't want to pick something too extreme that a lot of people aren't going to understand. I think that's why mm. something like the computer metaphor, I would argue, really didn't like stick until like you get into the 80s. Like even though it was around, like they were discussing memory or like aspects of computer technology in like the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And also, you don't want to over-optimize your memory metaphor either, because otherwise it's no longer useful. Because if we were very serious about the computer metaphor, which some cognitive psychologists are, where they go into great detail about programming and algorithmics and uh, artificial <laughs> intelligence, and then my eyes glaze over and I'm like, what are we talking about? Lost this them. is no longer helpful. Yeah. So... If you take your metaphor too seriously, it's no longer good. And I'll cut this part out. <laughs> yeah, we'll cut this part out while Andrew sits on the phone. I think I can actually... All right. Well, I guess with that being said, uh, do we have any final thoughts about metaphors of memory? I think my last thought is that this is just a surprising area where we see the influence of the humanities and psychology. There's, there's heavy social cognitive influence on what our metaphors are. Yeah, I think that would be kind of my closing thought, yeah. 
because we talk about this quite a bit in the podcast is this push and pull between no we're a science no we're a social science or a you know liberal arts thing and like today we've talked about art and design and philosophy and literature and language that cognition is not exempt from this push and pull of no, I uh, think arguably to science I mean unless you're like a cognitive neuroscience scientist and like there's probably some influence there mm-hmm. and even then even then yeah even then I have one of my students when we were talking about memory metaphors and computers and stuff he was like why is there this obsession with being like I don't know pardon the phrase hard science and I was like oh you just tapped a nerve and the anxieties of a discipline my good sir <laughs> it's because we want to be taken seriously and i mean everyone wants to be taken seriously but i mean i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure maybe we should we should we should do like a try to find out what is the button that you can push in every discipline like what what is it that biologists are anxious about what is it our chemists are anxious about like what is it because i i'm gonna take a stab i know some chemists <laughs> And they might be a little concerned about other people stepping into their field. We can write a paper about it and call it academic neuroses. Ooh, that's very Freudian. I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's tongue in cheek. Yeah. <laughs> so, I guess I guess on that note, we'll say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>